Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining me on the BIPOC Outside podcast. I'm Chris Cromwell, and today we are sitting down with Courtney Williams. Courtney is the founder and lead strategist at Brown Bike Girl, a New York-based consultancy that not only teaches people about biking, but empowers cycling leaders, collaborates with local health authorities, and does diversity, equity, inclusion, and access training throughout the industry. So let's get into it, shall we? But before we get into it, as you know, this show doesn't happen without our title sponsor, Norco Dirt Series. The Dirt Series hosts weekend-long mountain bike camps throughout Canada and the U.S. in some of the most exceptional ride locations. Whether you're a new rider or wanting to advance your skills, the Dirt Series offers gender-specific, co-ed, and youth-focused camps. Check them out at dirtseries.com or find them on the partner link on our website. Courtney, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I am well, and I am warm in uh, Brooklyn, New York today. <laughs> so let's jump right into it. Tell us how you got introduced to cycling. Well, as a child, so I'm actually not a native New Yorker. I am from the Midwest, but I do believe that my spirit was meant for this place in terms of like pace and just the way that people like to communicate and get things done. So yeah, I essentially, I guess, grew up in the classic American little kids on the street riding around in packs. I think that's the vibe of like Stranger Things. It was Indiana. And then I moved out here. So I think I rode a bicycle from like age six, seven, eight, something up in there. I actually had a hard time learning how to ride, which was funny. I rode standing up for like probably a year because I couldn't sit down and balance. It was so strange. Anyhow, and then I rode probably up until the time I was 14 or 15, which is unusual for girls because girls start being, oh, I don't want to, you know, they, the male gaze and approval becomes their driver. So they stop sweating and playing hard, et cetera, et cetera. I went away to boarding school. So like boarding school, undergraduate, graduate, like just academics was my life. And I forgot that bicycling was something I did until I moved to New York City in 2009. And when I got here, it was the peak of like the bike beautiful kind of movement that was going on. So I was seeing like, oh, wait, there are adults on bikes here, which, you know, you don't think about it as a kid who's cycling or not in terms of age, because the only age that matters is you. And then there were adults biking. And I was like, oh, wait, I remember that I liked to bike. So I went to the flea market. I got a bike that I did not know at the time was too small for me because these are things you learn when you're an adult. And I just started riding and I rode ever since. It's been for fun. It's been for transportation, for health, for all the reasons I've ridden. So that's how adult Courtney has got here. So tell me one of your favorite trail stories. Tell me something that's been fun. Blah. You want, I mean, my fun stories are always like traumatic, ridiculous things that no one, like, how did this happen? I was just relaying this to someone yesterday. So I just did the Discover Hudson Valley ride in Hudson Valley, New York, which is very hilly and it was very hot and people were like dropping like flies. So I made the decision to opt out of trying to finish the route in favor of my health and my body talking to me, which is something that you should learn to acquire sooner than later, but especially as you get older. And once upon a time, so in cycling, if you don't know, if you're the type of long distance aspirant, people eventually want to do a hundred miles, which is a century. And I think the first time, no, probably the second time. So the first time I signed up to do a century, I had no idea about 
looking for terrain, an elevation. So I was going to ride with the Pride Ride, which is the LGBT cycling group in the city. And they were sponsoring one. And then I looked at the elevation. I was like, is this hilly? And the people were just like, <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. And I freaked out and didn't do that one. So the next time I tried to sign up, I did so with a friend from that same boarding school. Her name is Amy, and she came out to visit me. And we said she had allegedly had been training for a triathlon, so biking, swimming, running. So I'm like, all right, Amy's more fit than me, cardiovascular, so we'll be fine. She won't pull me down. When I tell you the series of follies that came from, like, ignorance. So you can start at two points in the city. You can start at Central Park. And this is the New York City Century that was formerly sponsored by and held by Transportation Alternatives. So you can start in Central Park where you can start in Prospect Park, which is in Brooklyn where I am. So I'll go to this one. So we start out, there's a couple of stops. So you're going clockwise around the city, more or less. We get first to underneath the Verrazano Bridge. She's borrowing my bike, which, you know, not a big deal, except it's an old school bike and has tension gears. So you got to listen to change gears. We get underneath the Verrazano and it's, oh no, Courtney, I've got a flat tire. Fine. You know, you ride a bike, you get a flat tire. Boom, boom. We change it. Not a problem. Between Verrazano and Coney Island, six miles, her seat post keeps falling down. And I don't know this because she's somewhat behind me, right? So she's saying that. So we get to Coney Island and then it's, oh no, Courtney, guess what we forgot? We? What, Amy? My inhaler. You have asthma? <laughs> what? Gotta tell people these things before. Oh my God. Okay. Okay. So, we, so I'm just like, all right, well, I guess I don't even know how to account for this. We're, okay. So we're going, we get to, I think the next stop is Marine Park. Nothing happens. You know, these are like 10-ish mile increments. We get to Forest Hills, Queens. Amy gets stung by a bee in like the ear or the lip, like something facial and truly unusual. And I'm just like, how the holy hell? So I'm just like, you know what? We're going to take a break. So we lay in the grass for like 45 minutes before we start. Next rest stop is Astoria, Queen. So we're swinging around, big swing toward Manhattan, Astoria is. And she drops off behind me. But like, I like to let people, you know, go their own pace. And then I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And I'm waiting and I'm just like, so I go back. Amy has now had an asthma attack and says, I had to sit on the side of the road. And I'm just like, oh God, I'm a horrible fucking friend. I'm sorry for the language. But she's had an asthma attack, but she controlled it. She's like, you know, what if, and if this is people don't know, I feel like asthmatics know this. You just got to really focus on your breathing, put your head between your legs, you know, do whatever you can, open up your lungs. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So we go to the medic tent. She gets albuterol. Amy, do you feel okay? Do you want to keep going? Yes. So out of Astoria, you go over the Triborough Bridge. On the Triborough Bridge, you're not supposed to ride it. We're walking. There's people crammed, crammed, crammed. And what you need to know about this is Amy is a pharmacist and I am a super prepper. So I have like my little bag of first aid stuff. We get on the bridge, we're walking. And then all of a sudden, somehow an older white woman in front of us like falls, gashes like mid forearm down to elbow blood is falling out you can see it and then she starts going into shock and I'm like mm -hmm. and she's like literally right in front of us so then we team almost a doctor and team prepper me I'm like pulling out the stuff Amy's doing the treatment and we get her off the bridge and I say you know what because things are escalating 
they just kept escalating. I was like, the next thing that happens is we get hit by a car just trying to get back to Brooklyn. So you know what we did? We got off, we got our medals, and we got on that A train back to Brooklyn, and that was the end. So that's one of my more prolific stories. You know, my other stories involve me like, I don't know, I balked a lot just in the mountains, just sitting there. People are driving by in trucks like, you all right? I'm like, I'm, I'm fine, I'm fine. My friend, those kind of stories. Those are Courtney's trail stories when I try to be epic. But you know, it's important to know that you can fail, embrace the fail, and know that the fail was, you know, a learning experience, essentially. I don't know how to fix the things that happened with Amy, though, but I love her and it's drawn us closer. <laughs> embrace the fail. I absolutely love that. <laughs> So in 2014, you started abdicating in the space. You went from a recreational cyclist to someone who's abdicating and organizing in the outdoor cycling space. What was the impetus for that? More or less. Yeah. So once I had become a cyclist, you know, an adult cyclist out here in New York City, let me see, I can't even tell you like the timeline at which I picked up a bike, but it was fairly like fairly quick to me being out here. So I had basically just been riding a lot. There's, I think in every geography, and I think Strava and that other thing reinforced this a lot more, that there's local routes. You know, there's things that in every city you want to be able to do. And in Philly, you know, you want to get on the Schuylkill, maybe you want to get to Valley Forge. Out here, you want to do the Prospect Park and the Central Park, and then you start doing the West Side Highway to the lighthouse. And then one day you go over the bridge. I'd done all the things. And then I was starting to feel like, uh, you know, I didn't want to lose the gusto and enthusiasm for it. I wanted to start going further, but I did not want to start going further alone for many reasons. But mostly, you know, my mom raised me to be aware of my blackness and my femaleness and the risk that the external world would want to potentially pose on me for that. So I was looking for other humans. <laughs> so I started organizing for Black women. And as I found myself in between the two spaces of very much having already been involved in the mainstream cycling world and knowing what they knew, i.e. mainstream equals white, and then the Black people and trying to merge them together, I would see that the white folks had very little interest <laughs> or care about like bringing in black and brown cyclists and this was evident by the fact that like we would go they would like route these enormous rides like the new york city century and when we would get through black and brown neighborhoods people are hanging out the window going what is this there's no reason that an event that has thousands of people through any particular neighborhood should not have engaged that neighborhood to be aware so if they're not even aware that means they you know, they're not on the bikes and they're not participating. And then for the people of color whom I was around, I was often finding that I was engaging them. And they like the thing that they will always say to me is I didn't know that there were others, you know, and that's just a really ridiculous statement to say or to have in a world where, you know, we're 21st century people, we've got the internet, you know, there are clubs, there are things and, and social media was not as prolific, right? People were at this point really still centralized on Facebook, Instagram wasn't a thing yet, but like still that availability was much. And so I said, all right, I can be the person, I am the person it feels like knows both sides of this coin. And if white folks are not going to voluntarily reach out and bring in that I'm going to empower the black and brown people to go in and not only go into cycling, but to find their path or their discipline right because cycling is so large and i can't say that i know this about well 
compared to traditional sports like ball based sports like that's it baseball is baseball and basketball is basketball but within cycling you have BMX you have mountain you have cross you have you know all of these different ways to express slash enjoy yourself and I wanted to expose people to their possibilities. That's like my driving force in life. I want to expose people to their possibilities, give them the resources to do it and let them go their own way. And so that's what I did. And yeah, eventually I said, I do this enough and I hate my job enough that I'm just going to lean all the way into it. And in 2016, I gave two months or two months, no, ha, two weeks notice. And it's like, I'm out and we just going to figure out what happens from here. Yeah. So that's when the Brown Bike Girl started. Right on. And you, I mean, you seem to have approached exposing people to their possibilities in a variety of different ways. Like you've been providing, especially throughout the pandemic, providing education, not just on people learning to bike, but how to be a leader in the space, how to build equitable spaces. Tell me about your approach to that and why that's important. Yeah. So when it comes to, I don't know, is it an epistemology? I think that's the word of like how to think about teaching. I think I first entered this space, my official space with, I want, so the name of the Brown Bike Girl is inspired by the fact that I was too frequently finding myself to be the one brown person, one black person, the one female person speaking reason and practicality into the spaces of like transportation and streets awareness and all this stuff and I don't want that to be it I can't be that there should be people for every place district whatever the case who can talk to that but what I realized is before yeah I could develop more leaders of that sort, I just needed to empower more Black and Brown cyclists to be cyclists who felt confident to be in cycling on the street and to be, once they get in the street, you know, it's once you get into the actual actions that you recognize, dang, when I'm here, it's so much better. It's so much more infrastructure. It's so much more easy for me to exist in this space versus near home where there's no bike lanes and nobody's doing traffic and forth, right? You can't really feel the gravity of that until you're on the bike and moving. And then you have to be the kind of person who has the desire to not just brave it out, be proud of you braving it out against traffic, but wanting to make the world better for other people so they don't have to fight the fight that you're fighting. So yeah, that's I just started out with a lot of monthly bike rides to to cater to our history and our experience of being a person of color in space, right? Because I needed everybody to understand when I'm a black body on a bike or a brown body on a bike, what could happen to me and the repercussions of it are not the same of what is going to potentially happen for you. The police are not going to show up for me. The police are going to target me more. And I need everyone to be aware of that so that you have the wherewithal to even try to advocate for me. And then once I started getting those people or a group of people like really involved in those issues and caring, I moved very quickly, I think. So I started, I left my job 2016. My first job might've been a couple months later, organizing a black and brown bike tour out of East New York. And then by the following year, I had come up with the curriculum for my favorite program, which is group ride leader training, wherein I train people to learn how to lead a group ride. So that means 
I teach you how to start thinking about a massive group of people behind you because it is not the same. Throwing yourself in front of people or putting out a social media call and say, follow me to a destination is not the same kind of, there's leading and there's leadership. I want leadership. I want the discipline. I want the awareness. I want the care. That's what leadership is, right? Because anybody can follow someone to a destination. So yeah, I formed a partnership with the Department of Health in New York City. Very thankful. I knew some people there who reached out to me. And yeah, for the last five years now, SANS won in the pandemic. I've been working with them to develop about, I think there are are probably 30-ish people in the city of New York now who've done this intensive training with me because I'm also a league certified instructor from the League of American Bicyclists. So that's how I know like the technical training of this is how you should universally ride through a street, where you should put yourself, what lane to be in, how to make the decision before you make the turn, right? And then my own practical experience of taking these people through the streets, talking about being black and brown, going to black and brown spaces, elevating black and brown themes through my rides. And I just put a lot of love into it. So that's my ongoing project. And every year I get all tearful, like, I'm so proud of you all. You're my, because one of the first things I tell them, you know, it's like, you need to recognize, like, people are trusting you so much as a leader. You don't realize it until they do every single thing you do. They move how you move. They pick up your habits of, you know, because people assume that the person in front is a teacher. And that's what's so powerful about being a leader is whether or not you chose to be a role model, you are somebody's role model. I can go back and tell you, well, I think I'm too old now, but when I was slightly younger, I could remember who taught me every little thing that I just happened to pick up on a bike ride. You know, I remember who taught me how to put a dollar in the tire if the tire blows out. I remember who told me where to put my foot on the pedal so I'm not out here pedaling like a weird penguin. Like, people trust you. And so I call them my ducklings because I say, you ever watch ducks? You ever watch how every single little duck behind them is like, I'm going in the exact same footsteps as mama. I'm like, I'm your mama duck. I don't care how old you are. You my baby duck until we done with this and then you can be your own duck. So I have 30 plus ducklings in the city of New York doing rides. And some of them made me so super proud. They've branched out into other outdoor disciplines. One started her own hiking company. They just make me proud. So I'll stop because I get teary every time. The collaboration with healthcare organizations is really important. Um, Yeah. Specifically, you know, for black and brown communities, which are underrepresented in terms of positive determinants of health. Is that sort of why you reached out that way or? No, it was serendipitous. How did this happen? I think people knew me. People knew me. I was doing work. I was getting little tiny features there, you know, by virtue of being one of the few women of color, people of color, and and not being afraid to talk to the political issues and be an advocate. People took notice of me. So I think it was the case that a colleague, acquaintance who worked in the Department of Health was supposed to be supporting the organization that put on Bike East, that Black and Brown bike tour in East New York. And they were in need of help at the time to to get to completion and they said we know a person who's organized and seems to get things done right so that's how bike east collaboration started and then word of that got to another department of health office because in the city of new york we have health action centers so there's one in the bronx there's one in 
East Harlem, which is where El Barrio Bikes is. And just recently this year, I was able to collaborate with Brownsville Health Action Center because of the same thing. They're talking to each other about these are the programs that have worked for us. This is how we've been able to initiate and activate communities. So yeah, it's just a lot of good fortune and accountability and getting things done. The uh, Brownville Bike Consultancy comprehensive than just that program, though. You're speaking backwards to politicians. You're speaking backwards to industry to educate them on where their gaps are. What are you telling them? Well, one, I just want to make sure we get the name right, Brown Bike Girl. So literally Brown and Bike and Girl, it's me. But you know what? I don't really like politics at all. <laughs> I dislike politics so much because people say things and then they don't do things or they don't do them on the timeline. Because I mean, you know, process is a thing, but I don't really think process is usually the problem where people just don't follow through. I can say that there are politicians who I, in my city, who I appreciate and I do have faith in regarding bike projects. So there was at one time a little caucus of council people who actually rode bikes. Like it, they rode bikes before they got in office, they support bike legislation, et cetera, et cetera. So I know that I can count on them if I wanted to engage with them to like help me further up message or get resources or guide me in some way. The closest I think that I've chosen to engage with politicians is that when I was nominated to become the bicycle mayor for New York City and actually at the end of 2019 I turned it down because I was like I don't want to do this. The problem was or the situation was once upon a time a lot of people were talking about we need a bicycle mayor in New York City and I was like that's ridiculous like the city's too big also What's the bicycle mayor going to do? And they wanted it as a government official who would be some sort of liaison between the police and Department of Sanitation and trying to address and correct and basically scold all these other agencies who weren't doing enough to keep bike lanes clear or, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I was like, if they don't listen to the mayor, why would they listen to a citizen who just happens to be somebody who bikes, right? So I was, I publicly was like, no, that's dumb. So then... <laughs> This organization called Bikes, B-Y-C-S, out of the Netherlands has a different approach to bicycle mayors, which is they made the world's first bike mayor. That's Anna Lute, who actually lives in my neighborhood now. And they're just like, this is a person who just says, go team bike, do what you can to get more people on bikes, et cetera, et cetera. And I turned it down because I was like, I've already publicly said no to this. Also, again, too much going on. But then when the pandemic hit and the mayor at the time, de Blasio, said everybody should be on bikes and then followed up with absolutely no action. And then all of a sudden there were people on bikes, like twice as many people were on bikes in one week. And I was like, oh, no folks is just out here wild because every spring we're like, oh God, here come the newbies. They don't know what they're doing. So if people are just pulling bikes out of garages. People are just jumping on bike share and just going for it. And there's going to be thousands more people. I just, I felt I wasn't responsible, but I just felt like, because I know that I can make this better, I have to engage with this. So that's when I reached out to Carlina Rivera, who is the Lower East Side Council person, to talk to her about it because she had been supporting the governmental bike mayor. And I said to her, look, I just want to be very clear. I think I'm about to take this position, the citizen advocate position, but I don't want to overshadow or confuse the public or the, like the greater public cares about bikes. They don't. But the bicycle people, <laughs> the bicycle hardcore folks in New York might get a little pissed if I, you know, whatever. So I said, would you mind 
like give me some feedback if I call myself the people's bike mayor just to make sure that nothing about what I do is confused with what you want and she was like yeah sure go for it whatever <laughs> and I was like all right thank you I just wanted just wanted to make that clear to respect the position so that's when I accepted that in March yeah no I declared on May 1st the beginning of bike month 2020 and I just launched into bicycle education publicly free every fourth Wednesday of the month. And it was all about, all right, so you're on this bike. Here's how to navigate the city. Here's how to be a real vehicle because you are a vehicle in the streets because I'm mostly just, I just don't want people to die. That is my driving force for a lot of things. Please don't die. You don't have to die and don't cause other people harm by the way you bicycle. Yeah, totally. A lot of your work also challenges stereotypes in terms of who is a cyclist and where they cycle. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I am a huge proponent of thinking about the semantics of what we say and who it impacts, who it encourages and discourages. So everyone on a bike is a cyclist and there's so much like politics wrapped up in this word cyclist which is very technical and factual if you are on a bicycle you are a cyclist however over time because cycling has been kept exclusive and mainstream and white so many people from the outside identities of being black and brown of being queer of wanting to cycle in ways that are not long long distance endurance tour de france modeled type cycling or competitive cycling don't want to necessarily identify with that term cyclist because it has a very you know defined image in their head but i feel that when you cede the power of a word over to the people who want to be exclusive it does not help you. So I'm just like, everybody is a cyclist because it's factual. But also I want the people who have big gatekeeping in that way to know that other people are going to call themselves cyclists and that they're not going to see that space and that you need to open up how you've been visualizing people because the working cyclists, the functional cyclists, the sometimes on the weekend cyclists, like when you tell them they're not a cyclist, they don't grow into potential. They shrink from opportunities. They don't go to the big bike tour. They don't explore. And that's not okay. And also in terms of street safety and advocating, I remember giving a, so I have DEI trainings that I do, DEI trainings, which is diversity, equity, inclusion stuff. And I remember talking to, I think I was actually doing it for the transportation alternative staff after the Vision Zero conference in like 2018. And I'm like, I try to teach people about their biases, how bias functions, why bias and privilege and all this stuff exist. And since they're a pretty white-led organization historically, and they put their focus where their money comes from, which is richer white people who got time and money to do that. I'm like, I need you all to understand that we need to message that everybody is mutually vulnerable. It doesn't matter how much your bike costs, who's on that bike, what they're doing at the time. We are all equally able to be run the hill over by a car and shredded to pizza. And if the people who call themselves cyclists or try to be exclusive about cycling choose to only advocate for themselves, they're losing so many other voices that they could be adding to their own cause, but also when you protect other people, you protect yourself. Like, I really hate that you have to tell people 
you know, like speak to people's like selfishness to get them to act. But I need you to care when the working cyclist, like the one who just went past my window, gets hurt or robbed or whatever, because when it comes time for you to need some elevation and think there's less voices. So it all works together for the goodness of bikes if you just open it up mentally. What are transportation planners getting wrong in your mind? Where are they failing us? I don't really engage too much with like infrastructure conversations just because those people are rabid. There's so many opinions about the exact correct piece of, you know, is it a bollard or is it like a hardened bike lane or is it the whatever? But I can say in a very general sense, a very general sense is America likes incrementalism far too much. They like to, let's do a little piece and see how that goes. We don't need you to have step safety interventions. Either it's 100% safe, like it's back, I can't even say 100% because anything can be messed up, but maximally safe or it's not. Oh, what every bike lane theoretically should be is separated, physically separated from cars with barriers that cannot be run over, removed, punched into. You know, people are discovering that those little flexi joints that stick up out the street, see some transportation nerd is judging me right now, that they can be run over, right? So it's just like, okay, well, New Yorkers have no fear. If they find out they can run over it, it's getting run over. So what does that do? That's just money we've spent on the appearance of discouraging someone who don't know better that they can run over it and run over the cyclists as well. I do appreciate that our new Department of Transportation Commissioner has enacted the hardening of bike lanes. So what's happening is they're putting Jersey barriers, those big concrete joints that, you know, like help you not run over the other side of the freeway along some of the most accident prone, nope, accident is not the right word, crash sites for, for bike lanes. And they have been working as we've been getting lots of snapshots of the people who were texting and driving who have literally run their SUVs and whatever up and gotten stuck on that. Because every time you see that picture, you're like, that could have been a cyclist under that car, you know, or a cyclist knocked off their bike onto the sidewalk with a broken clavicle or wrist who can't go to work, who can't feed their kids, who can, you know, all that kind of stuff. Those, that's the impact of protecting cyclists because every cyclist is a person with a family, even if that family is just their cat. So yeah, everything should be separated. Now, I fully acknowledge that in some places that's not possible. New York, Philadelphia streets are so small, right? There's not necessarily space to physically divide a street for a car and for a cycling lane. But there are, you know, America likes to say is the best, like innovate mofos. Like we should have streets that are only dedicated to bikes. There should be use of disused space to turn into bicycling highways. There are many ways to achieve what we can. It's the will to do it. And there's not enough general public will, like I said, the general public does not care about a cyclist. They still very much think either cyclists are broke folks who ain't got no money and so they chastise them for even being on a bike or they think cyclists are dumb for choosing a bike over a car or whatever. They, there's a lot of hostility if they even think about them at all. So of course they're not going to vote in our interest. And this is where I think governments just have to say, look, you don't think about this, but we have, and we just got to do this. And once it goes in and you see less people dying and people beating the bus all the time and you're getting there faster, then you'll appreciate it. So that's me on infrastructure. Okay. I'm going <laughs> to ask one more. 
infrastructure adjacent question. In a previous article, you said bike lanes are white lanes. Talk to me about disproportionate rates of traffic violence. <sighs> I hope I didn't say bike lanes are white lanes. I usually am like, don't say that's stupid. Bike lanes are white lanes is a sentiment, however, and it's the thought that, you know, bike lanes are for gentrification and to bring people who want to displace people of color out of their neighborhoods. Yeah, no, absolutely not. We need to dispel this. So when we talk about bike lanes as communities of color, especially ones that are in danger of, well, we're all constantly in danger of being displaced, but at the tipping point of like high gentrification and displacement, we need to recognize that a bike lane is for everybody. It is a utility. It's a utility in the way that a stop sign is a utility and stop lights are a utility. Plumbing and electricity are, you know, these are things that can and should exist in every place in all spaces for the good of the people in that space, period. The problem is the association of time of when they get put in and the closeness to that tipping point of a neighborhood flipping in terms of new white residents, high income folks who are not going to be long term and do not appreciate and want to acculturate with the people who live there, right? So then we start seeing bike lanes associated with that improvement was for somebody else. It wasn't for me. It was intended to be the beginning of pushing me out. And the reality also, because not enough folks who are not already into cycling, think about it, folks of color cycle all the time. They've always been cycling. Low key, low high key, people of color, especially islanders, Caribbean islanders are the reasons that the fixie scene is what it is because on the island, you know, a fixie doesn't require a lot of maintenance. And, you know, on the islands, they were using them all the time. They brought that culture to the U.S. and it got picked up as per all the things Black into the mainstream, right? So they've always been cycling and then people of color are working more at night and all these different shifts where you need to get yourself there and back. It's more affordable, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, they're not, they're going to protect us. It's going to protect the people who are on that bike. It's going to make them more visible. It's going to give them a more, I can't necessarily say protector route, but like there's more visibility around routes for the people who use those bikes. And we need to stop being so stereotypical toward ourselves about who's on that bike and why they're on that bike. Because you know, once you get mad at somebody, you yelling, you on that bike because you broke. You on that bike because you got a DUI. You on that bike because you ain't no good. You a scrub, right? Like, let's stop defaming the people who are just average Joes and Jills and whatever non-binary name we'll throw in the middle of there. Stop defaming them for being on the bike just because they won't be on the bike. Let them be on this bike. <laughs> just let people bike without judgment and be safe and have a piece of, you know, it, it ain't nothing but paint in the most part in your street. Just let it happen and know that it's for the good of everyone if you too decided to be on a bike. And I really, you know, it goes hand in hand with embracing and again, deracializing like the environmental movement. We, people of color, deserve to be a part of the environmental movement. We deserve to be taking control of our destinies. And if that means we biked more because we know that all that exhaust, all that highway rebuilding, all that stuff, it comes to us first. So let's take control of it and get on these non, non-diesel, non-fuel powered vehicles and take some of that smoke out of our own air. And we know that our diabetes and heart rates and hypertension are accelerated amongst our community 
be it because of obesity, be it because of the stress of being Black in America, we should be taking control of it. So if we keep stereotyping the reasons why people bike or not and cutting ourselves from off from the possible, you know, tool for change and betterment, then we are only hurting ourselves with words and ideas that are not necessarily at all true. Yeah, I absolutely agree. You also work on a little bit on educating allies. So what is it that allies need to understand about, you know, how safety is more complex, quality of infrastructure? What are you teaching allies? What am I teaching allies? One, well, one, I don't really use the word allies much because I feel like it's like a gold star or a medal that someone has achieved a certain level of participation and the knowledge of the black and brown experience, especially in urban spaces, is so complex, so diverse, so ever-evolving. You will never <laughs> know enough or experience enough. And too frequently, when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, and access realm of education, people want to be affirmed far too much. Like, you did enough you're on the right path. You're like level one, two, three, <laughs> like there will, you will never reach a level and it's not about you. It's about being present and participating, right? What am I teaching them? I have found myself rewriting, I don't know, some little press something or other because somebody asked me what I did. And I found myself describing EIA work as accountability work. So I'm teaching people to be accountable for what they do and what they don't do and the thoughts that they have, because I believe that anti-oppression work is transferable, right? There's, I don't need people to only think about biking and making things safer for cyclists or riders or however people like to currently identify themselves in order for them to also care about street wellness and safety for like a scooter. Right. That's transferable. It doesn't matter who the subject is. If you understand the underlying concepts of how your decision or inaction affects an outcome on another person, you've got it. So I spend my time, like I said before, really teaching people about these words that they were probably considered the buzzwords of the 21st century of diversity. I spend a lot of time showing people the gravity of and the purpose of the words that will trigger them and to say, you're saying I'm a bad white person. No, I'm saying you have some ideas that serve a purpose, whether you think you're good or not, and it's benefiting you. I teach people that bias comes from somewhere and bias comes from people making a decision to try to put themselves above someone else for self-preservation and that that self-preservation, despite everybody else's wellness, is white supremacy. So if you're white and you're benefiting from it, it does not matter if you have the intent to say, I am better than someone, you are being told that you are better than someone, you are living off the benefit of whether or not you chose to enact it on yourself or not. It's happening in ways that are overt. It's happening in ways that are just, you know, you're, you got a house. Oh, did you know you got that house? Because a white lender and some folks way back in the day said white people should have houses and they should have better credit scores. And they should, it doesn't matter. There's so many things around you that if you don't choose to investigate them will continue to happen. And so we just talk about that and how that works 
first and then apply it to, all right, so you are a transportation professional. So you are an advocate. So you are the leader of a cycling club. Now that you know that bias and privilege and white supremacy work, why they work, how does it show up with the way that you have been working? How can you think backwards to, dang, all of the bike rides that I do start in my neighborhood. They want a certain type of bike. It happens at a certain time. It happens to cost a certain amount of money. How does this impact all the black and brown people? How easily they can access it? What feels normal and thoughtless to me is something I need to think about if I'm going to, and this is my underline, not have those people come to me, not have those people participate and make me look good, but in the reverse, how does this impact how I'm able to empower somebody else to cycle? Because that's the other part of the equation. So that one where I talk about the bias of the privilege really in depth is called outside advocate. You're outside of the black and brown experience and you need to understand yourself to connect better with people. And then when the first Juneteenth got approved, I was like, oh no, there's going to be so many white people just throwing Juneteenth things inspired in all the wrong damn directions. So I made another training called Creating POC Affirming Events. And POC Affirming is what an event that is, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, and access driven should be about. It's not about you getting them to come. Like your success rate is not, did we get 50% of the population? How many more? We're not counting Negroes no more. That is, wow. You know, no, we don't do that. What we are doing is measuring how often did I include measures that would, you know, make somebody else be able to access this? How did I change this? How did I center the other populations of Black and Brown BIPOC folks, their needs and their themes? And if, and I tell them, if not one person of color shows up on your ride, it does not matter because POC affirming, the affirming somebody means you speak well about them in the presence of whomever, right? I can affirm you by saying, that person is good. That person did this. That person or this collection of people know this. They experience this. I am elevating their existence and their truth and their abilities to whoever the audience is. So whether or not the people who are the subject of, you know, the ride are present, I have now taught, you know, let's just go for shout out to Denver, Colorado, where there's to Black people, like we have now, you have now said to those people, Black and brown people exist, they do a thing, they have an experience, and those people now know that. And we could talk about it being like a little minute, little touch, like we went to a monument. Yay, the Harriet Tubman monument. Y'all wouldn't have gone there on your own. You know, that's a very light touch to you know, just doing something as in-depth as my, like, Black history ride that I do in the city. That's like an all-day thing. We go to different sites and we talk. And you end up wanting people to take action, you know, some action, something that actually moves the needle that, again, is not just giving people gold stars for showing the hell up so they can have a discussion about it over a dinner party. But how have you created in the people who are on your ride a desire to connect with and better other people's lives in the way that they experience life. That's what affirmation is about. So that's my very long-winded answer to that question. It's not a small topic, so. <laughs> it's not a small topic. And that was a phenomenal answer. Thank so you. what is your ideal future? How do you know that the work is done? The work ain't getting done. It's not 
I look at the world as a continuum. I just, it's a continuum. Things evolve in ways that you can never imagine. I think that people just need to be open to evolving with how the work reveals itself to you slash them. Yeah, there's no measure, you know, because I just go back to people are too frequently on all sides of the table, black, brown, white, count, they, they just go to counting. Oh, I had a ride and 500 people showed up. Like, okay, that's fantastic. That is a contribution to enlivening and energizing black and brown cyclists. However, once those people go home, you know, or once that group of people who've shown themselves to you and taken a risk on coming to your white bike club for the first time, those bike when they go home, what happens after that? If it was just an experience, you know, the movie ends in an hour and 30 minutes. Did you just make a beautiful movie that exists, you know, as a memory or as a social media, you know, real, what have you given them to make cycling go on? So I don't believe in finishing the work. I do believe in proper work. I think that the most meaningful work to be done to and for Black and Brown cyclists is that which empowers them to be self-sufficient cyclists, which is what I aim to do all the time in terms of making sure they know how to survive all situations. That's where I put myself because I don't believe that politicians should be relied on. And I mean, so many decisions just happened in the last couple of days to show us politicians and elected officials and appointees don't need to be relied on to give us our outcomes that we deserve as humans. So black and brown folks should be learning how to change that tire. They should be learning how many options that they have and how they want to use that bike and to be free of judgment about doing it. I think the best advice I could give an adult cyclist, for example, to be the best that they could be, even while keeping things, you know, recreational and light, is that you need to ride with multiple groups of people. You know, too often cycling and identity. Black people love club. I'm gonna say this. This is something I said. Black people love them a uniform and a club. You could and maybe I'm saying too much for the white folks, but hey, to pull the sheep with the wool over our eyes. But Lord, if you just give us matching outfits sometimes, you ain't got to give us nothing else. And it's a damn shame. So y'all stop it. Make your own shirt, okay? Once you give yourself badges for learning how to fix your tire, adjust your brakes, you know, give yourself some levels because if you're just showing up and matching and not developing as a cyclist, I hope you're happy. Like, I'm sure you're happy, but, and I hate comparison, but like, please don't tell me, like, roll up on me as like a 10 plus year cyclist and be like, yeah, I'm a cyclist. I do X, Y, Z, like with all the bass in your voice. And if you get caught ass out with a flat, you don't know what to do. Ride with multiple groups of people and especially put into your rotation of people slash groups, a group that purposefully educates and invests in you. You should come, like, this is a life rule. You should be associating with people who invest in you, period, who pour into you to make you a better person. And my concern with the groups that, you know, can pull a lot of people 
and have been operating for the last two years is that their cyclists still aren't better cyclists in the way that they are now able to ride by themselves. If you can only ride surrounded by two or 300 other people, if you only feel safe in a group so, so that hopefully the car hits all the other people before it hits you, that's not where you should be. You deserve more and you have to conscientiously give yourself that. If you don't want to, you know, because everybody, your own stays, I just want more for people. If you only want to ride in a big group setting because you like to be around that many people and that's the only time you want to come out, so be it. But please don't flex and like assume like the judgmentalness and the competitiveness and the better than you-ness that is traditional in cycling and really needs to stop. Like the elite vibes need to stop, but especially don't have elite vibes if all you do is show up with people with a logo. God bless you. Like, <laughs> like I'm dedicated to not like crapping on anybody, but there's so much more that could and should be done. And I'm just very passionate about what it means to be a leader and a leader being a teacher because you're responsible for those bodies and you're responsible for like keeping it real about where you are and in the pantheon of things that you should know. That's all. I, I want to be respectful of the gift of your time. I know you have other. Oh, yeah, I got to go give blood. <laughs> <laughs> so I just have two more quick questions. What's next? What's coming up next for you in terms of, you know, work, passion projects? So what? I'll be very real. I am trying to learn to relax, period. Because when I tell you woo, the gift of learning, not only keyword boundaries, but like how boundaries, productiveness, capitalism, the impetus of saving the world as a Black woman, the impetus to dang, if nobody else does it, I got to do it. You got to rest. You got to rest. It's all been a big swirl for me since, heck, I think even before the Brown Bike Girls started because I was working my previous organizing like it was literally a second full-time job. And so the way I grew up, I was raised Christian and within that Christianity, I believe that the message of how to be a, per a person or what is the purpose of life is slash was really to serve. If you serve your fellow person, if you are a guardian, if you are a teacher, if, you know, give them the resources, you, that's all you can really, that's the only control we really have in life is what we gift other people. So I've always, you know, felt strongly about needing to do it and being a person who is blessed with a lot of different, with the gift of like communicating some things and understanding things and being able to break it down for people in ways that they can understand it and find myself on the, I'm really not tooting my own horn. I'm just, I'm acknowledging what I've learned about myself. Like there aren't a lot of people who can feel that one little spot. So I'm just like, you know, that, that talented Tiff mentality, if you're the one who knows that you can do it, you got to do it. You got to do it. And there's just a relentless amount of social issues that have come to our awareness because of social media and like the constant connectedness. But in reality, I think the human brain is not meant to take in that much information all the time, especially if you are a reactive spirit because you want to fix it all. You want to fix it every time. You know, throughout the pandemic, I just found myself being this person who's like, there's new information. I got to find a way to interpret it and make sure that people understand it in my circle. There's an event. Oh, the rates are up. 
how do I fix it? It's always the search for how do I fix it? And I have to stop because apparently I need to fix myself. (laughs) So I'm chilling in regards to the fact that I'm not seeking out work and projects as much anymore. You know, I've been very happy this year to have the discipline to do my annual El Barrio Bikes training. I was blessed with the opportunity to do, you know, my group ride leader training again with Brownsville. So that got me through a couple of months. And the thing is, you ain't got to look for problems or opportunities. They're there. It's just whether you choose to engage with them. And so while I've been decompressing, I got a small injury that kept me off my bike for a while. I just started thinking about what do I need? What do I want? I'm just like, dang, I've been thinking about what everybody else needs and wants so much. I'm not really sure what I want for this next five, 10 years. So I've just been doing that. And in the midst of sitting on the couch, thinking about that, the phone rang and they're like, hey, we need you to do that program like 10 times. Like, whoo, all right. That's more of a, a big haul than I ever thought I could do. So I'm trying to figure out how to expand my company, I guess, is the answer. I'm figuring out how to expand my contracted and employee related support so that I can take on more of my trainings without me being the person who's doing all the training. Because that's just, again, going back to the origin of the brown bike girl. I can't be all the things at all the places all the time. And that's okay. I just got to find people that take cycling and that message of the importance of our safety and discipline as seriously as I do so that they can help me further that that mission. Where do our listeners find you? Everywhere. The brown bike girl is everywhere. There's just stuff on the internet. So, of course, Instagram, I am more most active there. It is the brown bike. Everything I have is the brown bike girl. So Instagram is the brown bike girl. Twitter is brown bike girl. Be careful because I've been told that similar accounts with not my content woo <laughs> woo no are out there so just find the right one i do have a patreon where i don't say a whole lot but every year i send you stuff in the mail that i like branded stuff little trinkets and things thank you and if you go to thebrownbikegirl.com it actually goes to my link tree which is like little videos of things like the big fix covid relief repair days that i've done there's things in there occasionally like if you want to sign up for an event that i'm hosting the permission slips or liability forms are always there so between instagram and thebrownbikegirl.com and checking on the events calendar you'll always see what's mostly happening but i encourage you to follow instagram because i'd be on there saying stuff awesome and listeners just so you don't get tripped up all of those links will be on the show notes to this episode courtney this has been a privilege thank you so much very lovely i appreciate you inviting me to your platform where all the bipoc live outside and uh, my last piece of advice for cyclists is to cross train like do more than one thing y'all like anybody can make once you learn how to ride a bike you know staying upright and going forward is the is the basics a bike will literally stay up while you're on it as long as it's moving so that's not the flex the flex is going in the direction that you want to go and learning things about yourself through your bike and if that bike takes you to the woods and you get off the bike some god bless getting off the bike sometimes and hiking up a mountain to bird, which I found myself. I'm like, I don't hike, but my bike takes me camping and the camping takes me to the birds. And now I'm a bike camping nerd of some sort. So, you know, do all the things, do all the things. Don't put limits on yourself. Don't be afraid to be by yourself as well.
it's safer than you think. And even if it's not safe, if you fill your heart with what makes you happy as you try nature, it's fine. It's all fine. It's all fine. It's all fine. I love it. Thank you. All right, my dear. It's just started raining at this time for me. I'm going to hop in this young Uber to give blood. Everybody give blood too, because there is a national crisis. We need that. Ah, y'all, this is the end of yet another episode. Links on where to find Courtney and the Brown Bite Girl are available on the show notes to this episode at BIPOCoutside.com. If this episode was as refreshing to you as it was to me, please don't hesitate to smash the like button. We hope to see you again on another episode of BIPOC Outside.